0: This morning, we return to the Gospel of Mark, and today we will be in Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. If you need a Bible, you can find a Black Pew Bible in front of you. It's on page 852 of those Bibles. <clears throat> I invite you to stand with me as we read from God's Word, beginning in Mark chapter 15. Verse 1, and as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer. So that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in their insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Perhaps the most well-known creed in Christianity is the Apostles' Creed. It's one of the oldest creeds, potentially dating back to the 4th century, It's a creed that's been recited by Christians for hundreds and and hundreds of years. Pastor Stephen often leads us to recite it together as a church at our Sunday evening fellowship. And it begins with the words, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Those words suffered under Pontius Pilate have been read and have been etched in the minds of Christians for centuries. And if you you think about it, it's a significant call-out of Pilate. In what might be the most famous Christian creed, there are only two names other than Jesus mentioned. You have Mary, Jesus' mother, and Pilate, who wasn't even really a a very prominent Roman official in his day, yet he has a prominent place in Christian history for his role in the death of Christ. The Apostles' Creed could have mentioned Judas, who betrayed Jesus, could have mentioned Peter, who denied Jesus, or Caiaphas and the, the Sanhedrin, who condemned Jesus, or even the crowd who yelled to crucify Jesus. But Pilate is singled out as the one whom Jesus suffered under because he served as the gatekeeper to the crucifixion. And his actions on the morning of Jesus' death reveal not only his guilt in allowing the Son of God to be killed, but also the grave danger of human self-interest that was and is the reason why our Lord had to suffer the humiliation he did at the cross. This morning, we get to meet Pilate in Mark's gospel as we consider the first 15 verses of Mark chapter 15. Here in this chapter, we are mere hours from the cross in our journey with Mark through the life of Christ. And in our passage, we see that Jesus... Silently endured a slew of injustices so that he could be our substitute. All around him, people were acting out of self interest, but Jesus was silently selfless. And his example reminds us to trust in the plan of God. It reminds us to watch out for the confusion that living a life of self interest causes. And it reminds us to be extremely grateful for his substitutionary sacrifice for us. As Jesus is brought to Pilate in these verses, we we cannot miss the message that it was the sinful self-interest of man, including that of Pilate, which caused our Savior's death. Our selfish human desires led Jesus to the cross, but it was his selfless resolve and endurance that led us out of the condemnation we deserved. We're going to take these verses in three parts today. First, the silent trust of Jesus in verses 1 through 5. Second, the self-interest of Pilate in verses 6 through 15. And finally, the substitution for Barabbas in verse 15. The silent trust of Jesus, the self-interest of Pilate, and the substitution for Barabbas. Uh, Let's begin with the silent trust of Jesus. In verse 1, we read that it was the morning of the day on which Jesus died. The Greek word there for morning indicates it was the early morning. It was likely sometime between 5 and and 6 a.m. And it was at this time that the Sanhedrin gathered again to formalize their charges against Jesus and finalize their strategy regarding how to get him executed. The Sanhedrin was the ruling council of the Jews. It was made up of 71 members. It included priests and scribes and other Jewish leaders or elders. Jesus had already been tried in the presence of many of them at the house of Caiaphas in the middle of the night. We learned about that back in chapter 14. And at that sham of a trial, those present condemned Jesus as deserving death for having committed blasphemy. When he affirmed that he was indeed the Messiah, the Christ. But apparently that rushed trial in the middle of the night wasn't enough. Perhaps the Sanhedrin wanted more of their members to be present. So they called for and planned another early morning meeting. It was a meeting led by the chief priest to question and condemn Jesus once again. Luke 22:66 to 71 provides us with the account of that meeting. It was really just a recap of the highlights of the trial at Caiaphas's place with some even more pointed questioning of Jesus. And, and Matthew 27, 1 tells us that when they got together, they were specifically trying to figure out how to put Jesus to death. You see the Jesus or you see the Jews, I should say, knew that they, they needed the help of the Romans, who were adamant about reserving the right to, to sentence criminals to death in their empire. Though they allowed the people under their rule to to govern themselves in many situations, they, they did not cede their authority over capital punishment. The Romans kept this authority in the regions they conquered, in part because they didn't want it to be used against Roman sympathizers in those regions. And so, knowing this, the Sanhedrin needed to figure out a way to get the Romans to agree to put Jesus to death. They themselves had condemned Jesus as worthy of death, but it was because of a religious issue. It was because Jesus had committed blasphemy in their eyes by equating himself with God. But to the Romans, that didn't really matter. That wasn't a punishable offense to them. It was merely a Jewish religious issue. So, part of the agenda of this early morning Sanhedrin meeting was likely to get on the same page regarding the actual accusation that the Jewish leaders would bring to Pilate to cause him to agree to punish Jesus at the cross. And the reason that they came up with was treason. And to the Jews, Jesus was a religious heretic. But to get him killed, they decided to characterize him before Pilate as a political enemy of the state. And they did this even though Jesus hadn't done anything that would hint at him desiring to usurp the earthly authority of the Romans. And so these Jewish leaders concocted a twisted characterization of Jesus in order to eliminate him because of the trouble he was causing them and the threat that he was to their religious power. Having decided this, they bound Jesus again, perhaps wanting to show that he was indeed a dangerous man, and they led him away, Mark writes, and delivered him over to Pilate. Pontius Pilate was the prefect of Judea. Pontius was his tribal name. Pilate was his family name. We don't actually know his personal name. In any case, he was kind of like governor over Judea from AD 26 to eighty thirty six As mentioned earlier, he had a somewhat important role in the empire, but he was by, by no means a, a p- political superstar. He wasn't a political heavyweight. In fact, we learn from other historical writings that he had quite a checkered record as a prefect. He himself didn't seem to be very fond of the Jewish people whom he ruled. He was more of a political opportunist who would do what he felt was needed in order to ingratiate himself with the Roman higher-ups. For example, when Pilate first became prefect, he tried to flatter the emperor Tiberius by hanging shields with Tiberius's picture on them in the temple compound in Jerusalem. And, and the Jews naturally took serious offense at this. They, they didn't want another image, an image of a leader to be placed in the house of God. And so they marched to Pilate's palace in Caesarea and asked him to remove the shields, which Pilate refused to do, and he threatened to kill them instead. The Jews didn't back down, though. They laid down on the grounds there, and they exposed their necks for him to slash them. It was at that point that Pilate realized he had made a political miscalculation, so he decided to take down the shields instead of risking a mass slaughter that would have jeopardized his new position. In another instant later on, Pilate wanted to help bolster the water infrastructure in Jerusalem. He wanted to build a 23-mile-long aqueduct to bring water into the city. But he essentially stole money from the temple treasury to fund that project. And this incensed the Jews once again. And they rioted against him. But this time, Pilate instructed his soldiers to use force, which resulted in the killing and trampling to death of many. So Pilate... And the Jews weren't the best of friends. Pilate was also involved in other violent incidents involving Galileans. Luke 13.1 writes about that. And Samaritans, the latter of which led him to being removed from office. And Eusebius, a Greek historian, records that after that incident, Pilate took his own life due to his disgrace. From what we know about Pilate, he wasn't a crazy brute like Nero was. He wasn't even necessarily more corrupt than other officials in his day. He was probably somewhat adept at his job because he was able to serve in the office for a decade. But he always seemed to be in the middle of some tension with the Jews. And his hold on the office of prefect was a precarious one. It seems like he was constantly trying to prove himself to Rome, but he often made blunders or was put in these difficult situations, which made him very mindful of his need To survive politically. Now, Pilate usually resided in Caesarea, but he would travel south to Jerusalem for things like the Passover feast. He wanted to keep an eye on things in light of all the Jewish pilgrims who descended on the city, many of whom weren't too thrilled about Roman rule. And so Pilate was likely living at Herod the Great's old palace on the west side of Jerusalem. And he was likely there on the Friday morning of Passion Week. This is probably where the chief priests and the rest of the Sanhedrin brought Jesus after their own trials in the early morning. John 18 records some initial conversations that Pilate had with the Jewish leaders, but Mark cuts right to the chase in his gospel in verse 2. As Jesus is brought to Pilate, the crux of the matter at hand is distilled by Pilate's question to him. Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? Are are you claiming to be another king? Are are you trying to displace the emperor as as the ultimate authority over the Jewish people? Are you, as these Jewish leaders claim, guilty of treason against the Roman state? And Jesus' answer is interesting. It's actually a bit cryptic. Mark writes in verse 2 that he answered him, You have said so. What what does Jesus mean by that? Is he trying to pull some Jedi mind trick on Pilate? What is he doing here? Well, well, Jesus clearly wasn't denying the claim to be king of the Jews. Obviously, he he would have, otherwise, he would have just said no. But he also wasn't actively affirming that title. I I think what Jesus was doing was affirming that you could call him the king of the Jews if you wanted, but he would probably word it differently. And in a sense, he was accepting the designation, but also indicating that it wasn't the designation he would give himself. He was the king of the Jews, but not the king in the way that the Sanhedrin and the Romans were thinking. And this is made clearer if you go to John 18. So I want you just to turn with me there for a moment. Turn to John 18, verses... 33 to 37. John 18, 33 to 37. In chapter 18 of John, John writes in verse 33, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests had delivered you over to me. What have you done? And listen to what Jesus answered here. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. And Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was bored, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. And so the Jews brought a charge of treason against Jesus before Pilate. But after examining Jesus, Pilate found no guilt in him. He determined rather quickly that Jesus was not trying to usurp the earthly authority of Caesar as claimed by the chief priest. And Mark tells us back in chapter 15, verse 3, that they accused him of many things. And and Luke tells us in in Luke 23, 2, that some of their accusations included Jesus misleading their nation, forbidding them to pay taxes to Caesar, which was blatantly false, and calling himself Christ, a king. But in the midst of all these accusations, Pilate noticed that Jesus didn't defend himself. So he asked him again in verse 4 of Mark 15 Have you no answer to make? See how many charges that they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Pilate was amazed that Jesus' lack of self defense caught him off guard. We all have an instinct for self preservation especially when we feel wronged, when we're accused of of something that we didn't do or say or false motives are imputed upon us, stirs in us a a desire to avenge or defend ourselves. That that happened recently with me regarding a a construction situation at our house. Someone claimed that I said something that I never did and they they levied a damage claim on a contractor working for us based in part on my statement. I felt the injustice of it all inside of me. I made it a point. I I spoke on the phone multiple times, sent this long email pointing out or trying to correct that statement. And I think that's how most of us normally respond in situations like this. But in this instance, Jesus was silent. And in light of the serious charges against him, this amazed Pilate. If you go to uh, Luke 23, 6 to 12, you don't have to turn there, but if you go there, you'll learn that Pilate found out that Jesus was from Galilee, and he sent him to Herod, the prefect of Galilee, because Herod was in town at the time. And and Pilate was in in a bit of a bind, and he didn't think that Jesus was guilty, but Jesus also wasn't defending himself. He wasn't saying anything. And so Herod seemed like a, a good person to defer to, since he was actually more familiar with Jewish customs And oversaw the area where Jesus was actually from. And so silent Pilate sent Jesus over to him. And Herod eagerly questioned Jesus at length. When he met him, the the chief priests and the scribes also followed. And they continued to accuse Jesus, Luke writes, vehemently. But again, Jesus made no answer. He was silent. You see, Jesus had already affirmed to Caiaphas that he was the Christ. And he hadn't denied to the Sanhedrin that he was the son of God. He had also partially accepted the designation of the king of the Jews. Jesus had answered the key questions set before him. He was not afraid to admit who he was, but he had already said what needed to be said. He did not feel the need to continue to respond to the barrage of false accusations being levied against him. And he was able to endure all that criticism Because he trusted that God would make things right in the end. J.C. Ryle has said, Nothing in the Christian character glorifies God so much as patient suffering. Nothing in the Christian character glorifies God so much as patient suffering. And Peter reminds us of this in 1 Peter 2. He says, For what credit is it if when you sin or are beaten for it, you endure, but... If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, that is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, 21, for to this you have been called as Christians. Why? Because Jesus also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Perhaps there is an area in your life, maybe an area in which you feel wronged or, mistreated, or misunderstood, that's, that's created a lot of noise in your mind, a lot of discomfort in your heart. But you just need to silently trust that the Lord will, will make things right with it. I'm not saying we should never defend ourselves, but when wrong for doing good, we must also continue to trust that the Lord will be our, our avenger and will bring justice in his time. And as believers, we should expect that others will mischaracterize what we believe or what our Savior has said. We should expect that we will need to take unpopular stands on issues that our world is thinking through right now. What we believe is a loving action is now considered hateful by others in society. But let's not forget the example left for us by our Lord. He he suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. The silent trust of Jesus reminds us of how we need to trust our Lord as well. Let's move on. As we continue in Mark chapter 15, we gain greater insight into the turmoil that plagued Pilate on this Friday morning. As we look at the rest of our passage. So in verses 6 to 15, I want you to notice now the, the self-interest of Pilate. The silent trust of Jesus, now the self-interest of Pilate. Pilate's attempt to pawn Jesus off to Herod failed, but another opportunity arose for him as he tried to find a way out of condemning a man whom he knew wasn't guilty of the crimes charged against him. Mark tells us in verse 6 that during the Passover feast, it was common for Pilate to release one prisoner at the request of the Jews. And this was something not only done in ancient times, but still practiced today. You know, we still have gubernatorial and presidential pardons in our country for various reasons. Well, Pilate's pardon process seemed to be specifically designed to curry goodwill among the Jewish people because they were given the opportunity to request the release of the prisoner they wanted. And if you look at verse 8, the crowd was ready for this. It says that the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. This crowd had had formed early in the morning when Roman governors did business to ask Pilate to carry out this tradition. Now, Mark doesn't give us a ton of details about this crowd, but it seems like a slightly different crowd than the one that greeted Jesus when he made his way into Jerusalem to Shouts of Hosanna on the previous Sunday. That was a very pro-Jesus crowd, full of pilgrims making their way into the holy city. But here, in the earlier hours of Friday morning, inside Jerusalem, the crowd that gathered doesn't seem the same. We need to remember that most of Jesus' close disciples had fled from him that night. When we left off last time at the end of chapter 14, Peter was crying over his denial of Jesus. Many of Jesus' supporters probably didn't even know he was arrested. Those who did know of Jesus' middle-of-the-night arrest probably had connections to the Sanhedrin in some way. And it's likely that some of them gathered together outside the place where Pilate was staying in support of the Sanhedrin or just out of curiosity. And there were probably also others who had been eagerly waiting for the feast in order to get Pilate to release a prisoner for them, perhaps also unaware that Jesus had been arrested. All that is to say that this crowd in chapter 15 is potentially more ambivalent, or anti-Jesus in the crowd that had initially welcomed Jesus into town that week. And and we see this as we continue on. Now, upon the crowd's request, Pilate is happy to offer a a potential candidate for pardon in verse 9. It says, he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? This seemed like a good solution to Pilate. He almost certainly knew that, that Jesus was a crowd favorite, so perhaps this would satisfy the Jewish people. But remember also that Pilate's historical record tells us that he wasn't a big fan of the Jews. So he probably didn't want to do their, their leaders too many favors. Releasing Jesus would hopefully not only satisfy the crowd, but maybe even be a little slap in the face to the Jewish elite. Pilate knew he had a responsibility to investigate the charge of treason that the leaders had brought before him, but he quickly saw through their guise. He understood that the leaders of Israel... And the chief priests in particular were just envious of Jesus. They were envious of the way that the crowds flocked to him and the authority with which he did everything. In addition, if you go to Matthew twenty-seven nineteen, it tells us that, that Pilate's own wife warned him not to mess around with Jesus because of a dream she had that night. And so Pilate offered up the candidate that he thought was ideal for release. But he didn't get the response he was hoping for verse 11 tells us that the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Now, we have to stop here for a moment and just consider Barabbas. Who was he? Well, back in verse 7, Mark tells us that he was among the rebels in prison. And he said he had committed murder in the insurrection. So, Barabbas was a rebel. He was a prisoner. He was a murderer. He was an insurrectionist. We don't know anything else about him from other sources outside the Gospels. But what we do know from the four Gospel accounts is that Barabbas was apparently a violent political activist. And in those days, the the big issue for the people in Jerusalem was their freedom. How can we get out from under Roman rule? The primary issue of the day wasn't the economy or climate change or immigration. It was freedom. And this meant all kinds of people were willing to challenge Roman authority. And it seems that that Barabbas was a man willing to take matters into his own hands in order to to get what he wanted and what many other Jews wanted as well. And somehow the the chief priests were able to stir up the, the nationalistic fervor among the people gathered outside Pilate's residence that day to get them to ask for Barabbas to be released instead of Jesus. Again, they may have been helped if the crowd gathered here was a different crowd than the one that had been following Jesus around town. Maybe seeing Jesus arrested had also begun to already turn public opinion against him. And of course, the pressure and persuasiveness of the religious elites got to these people. No matter what, this crowd was relatively easily stirred up to ask for the release of Barabbas instead of Jesus. But in verse 12... Pilate tries to give Jesus another shot. And he again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And, and they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? There, there's this sense of desperation in, in Pilate's question. He can't seem to figure out why the crowd would want such a popular, innocent figure like Jesus to be crucified. He, he knew the leaders of the Jews were envious of Jesus, But he expected the people to be more reasonable. But they shouted all the more, crucify him. They doubled down on their desire to see a violent insurrectionist released and an unparalleled man of compassion killed. They voted for force and rebellion in the midst of perceived oppression instead of submission and trust. They chose the kind of Messiah that they were looking for. They were looking for a political activist to free them. They were okay with having a murderer on the loose. His, his activism was appealing, while Jesus' inaction was seen as weak. Isn't that the tendency that we tend to have in our society as well? We exalt those in the world who take matters into their own hands and do things. We praise those who work to overthrow those viewed as our oppressors. We have a desire to see the powerful displaced and the cultural rebel rewarded. We're more inclined to protect our own interests and to fight power with power, to to lawyer up and sue someone, to exploit a hole in the system, to protest and to fight we aren't inclined to choose the way of peace and love and forgiveness and forbearance. Voting for Barabbas was voting for violence and force and power to overcome the problems of the day. It's what the Jews asked for before Pilate, and it's actually what they eventually got. In a few decades, that violent Jewish spirit grew, and it fomented into war against Rome. And that ultimately led to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. On the other hand, voting for Jesus would have been voting for humble submission and patient trust. Jesus was about absorbing evil and injustice and oppression and pushing out love and forgiveness instead. He wasn't about rebellion, but he was about redemption. Redemption. And I know many of you trust that God's plan will work out for you after you die. You trust him with your eternity. I just want to ask you, do you you trust him with your now? Do you trust God with what is going on with your life right now, next week? Are you more inclined to fight through the difficulties of this life, taking matters into your own hands? Maybe not violently, but certainly pridefully certainly with a a self-sufficient spirit, assuming that you know best. That's the way of Barabbas. It's what the Jewish people chose. And and Pilate ultimately and tragically granted their wish. Mark writes in verse 15, so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. He knew Jesus was innocent but he was scared of the crowd. <clears throat> and Matthew twenty-seven twenty-four says that when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water, he washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. In the end, Pilate was a pragmatist. He was politically motivated. Though he couldn't find guilt in Jesus, he didn't have the moral fortitude to stand up to him or for him when his ideas failed. When the crowd cried out for Jesus to be crucified, Pilate just put his moral compass away. He did what he felt would keep him in office. He satisfied the people because he was just interested in himself. And even though he tried to wash himself of his moral failure, his guilt remained. Church, beware of this kind of self-interest that can so quickly lead to dismissing Jesus. Like Pilate, you may feel that Jesus is generally right, but there are desires in your heart. Desires for wealth, or career success, or certain kind of family, or another person, or acceptance from peers, or comfort, or ease. All self-interested desires. And those things can cause you to deliver Jesus up as well. You can easily sacrifice Jesus in order to get what you want because of this natural human interest seen in Pilate, seen in the religious leaders, seen in the crowd, and lurking inside every one of us. Jesus was led to the cross. The silent trust of Jesus, the self interest of Pilate. Finally, I want you to notice. Just briefly, the substitute for Barabbas. The substitute for Barabbas. We can't overlook the picture of substitution in this scene. We have Barabbas, a criminal, being released. While we have Jesus, the innocent son of God, being detained in his place. But it potentially goes deeper than that. Because it's very possible that this was more than a simple prisoner swap. It's possible that Barabbas himself was scheduled to be put... On the cross later that day. The reason for this is that in verse 27 of Mark 15, we read that on Jesus' right and left were crucified with him two robbers. The Greek word for that word robbers is lestes. Jesus was crucified with two lestes. And that same word for robber, lestes, is also used to describe Barabbas in John eighteen forty. And though the association is loose, it's possible that these three robbers, these three rebels, were arrested together and intended to be crucified together. In addition, the name Barabbas is a last name, and it means son of Abba, or son of the father. And there are some Greek manuscripts of Matthew 27, 16-17, in which the first name of Barabbas is given as well. Well, there's some debate over whether these manuscripts should be accepted, but many people believe they're legitimate. Can you guess what his first name is? It's Jesus. And so when Pilate offered these two prisoners to the crowd, he was potentially giving them two choices. Whether they choose Jesus, Barabbas, son of the father, or Jesus Christ, the son of the true father. So when Pilate offered these two prisoners to the crowd, he gave them a choice, but their choice of Jesus was clear. Jesus Barabbas was released so that Jesus of Nazareth could take his place on the cross. Unlike Barabbas, Jesus didn't deserve to be bound or to die, but he silently allowed it as he submitted to the plan of God. He was Barabbas's substitute. And this means that he was scourged. Mark doesn't give us the details, but scourging itself was a horrific experience. It involved being lashed with a flagellum, a short stick with leather strands attached to it with sharp objects like bone or glass at the end. Soldiers would rake the the back and legs of their victims. They would rip out skin, shred muscles. They would hit bone. The Jews limited their lashings to 39, but the Romans had no limit. A scourging wasn't just a bad spanking. It left men mutilated, sometimes paralyzed. Many times it was enough to kill a person by itself. But Jesus survived this beating, in order that he might fulfill prophecies like Psalm 22 and be crucified on a cross as he predicted and as the crowd demanded. Jesus took the place of Barabbas just like he does for us. This is the substitutionary work of our Lord. He takes the punishment that we deserve. He takes our place. He he suffered what we should suffer. He offers his selfless life for our self-interested ones so that we might be released and freed. Oh, what a wonderful savior we have. Pilate wanted to satisfy the crowd who wanted to satisfy the religious leaders And they all wanted to satisfy themselves. The Apostles' Creed singles out the role of Pilate in the death of Christ. But the truth is that everyone was at fault. Everyone was acting out of their own self-interest. Jews, Romans, those in power, those in the crowd. And there is a sense in which we too, we all bear the blame of Jesus being scourged and delivered over to be crucified. But Jesus shows us another way he shows us that when you selflessly think of others and you patiently trust in the plan of God, there is lasting glory and freedom for one day this suffering servant, this lamb who died will become the lion who reigns and he will not only be the pejorative king of the Jews, but the powerful king of this world. And the shouts will no longer be crucify him, but we will be shouting praise him. Praise him. Hosanna. Praise our Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Oh, Father, as we get near to the cross in Mark's gospel, it is always sobering to consider the events that led to Jesus' death. Father, we see ourselves in Pilate and the leaders and the crowd. We don't assume that we would have acted differently than they did. But it is because of your grace in our lives that you have allowed us to see that Jesus is the true Messiah, the true Son of you, our Father. And we thank you for it. We, we also are humbled by the way that Jesus responded to all his accusations and all that was happening around him. He provides an example for us. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to follow in his steps. Oh, Lord, as we look to Jesus this morning, help us again to to trust in you just like he did, to be able to endure patiently when we feel wronged or mistreated. And to look to him as the substitute for our sins, especially our sin of self interest. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.